If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the latest episode of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we will break down stand-up comedy, the greats, the best bits, all your favorites with longtime NHL reporter Sean McIndoe. And maybe I'll throw in a couple stories about that one time I interviewed George Carlin, NBD, my friends. And we also will go deep on the new Damian Lillard album, which I at least... One of us on the Just Not Sports crew paid full price to buy. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. And joining me on the line, he is a highly regarded PR rep- representative in the sports world who has logged time with the Green Bay Packers, the University of Colorado Buffaloes, and many global sports brands. He is Adam Willard, and he is going to Hawaii tomorrow morning. Adam, the sacrifices you make to make Just Not Sports for the people week in, week out. Yeah, uh, I have to go for work, and it's a tough assignment, but I was willing to take one for the team, and here I go. (laughs) I have never been to Hawaii. Have you ever been there? I've never been to Hawaii. I don't take a lot of vacations, so this is work, but I am staying for a couple of days just to relax. Yeah. What, what is the best vacation you've ever taken, Adam? Uh, when, I w- when I graduated from college a long, long time ago, my parents said that they would take me anywhere in the world I wanted to go. So we went to Italy for 10 days. We did Rome, Florence, and then Venice. So I'd have to say that was my best trip. Nice, man. Nice. Mine was my my girlfriend is French. My girlfriend is French. So that is next on the list. Ah, I would say something romantic in French, dude, but I don't speak it. I took one year of French one my senior year in high school, so I wouldn't have to take Spanish four. And all the freshmen (laughs) in my class thought I was the stupidest guy ever. (laughs) (laughs) uh okay not with us uh this week gareth hughes who got sent away for a late assignment i believe he's in alabama adam oh really yeah yeah we'll have to ask him about it next week also joe reed um ladies and gentlemen if you've seen him we are accepting any information about his whereabouts just tell him that (laughs) he is loved and uh and, and and you know please reach out joseph I mean, Joe, respond to a text, anything. I know you're married, but come on, buddy. <laughs> Joe's basking in in newly newly married life, uh, you know, as uh, as as one does. Uh, but right now, we're gonna take the open of the show and make it wide open. Anything in and around the sports world is fair game. Okay, Adam, we're gonna get into Dame and his album in a minute, but right now, it's time to play your favorite game. Does that make me racist? 
And oh boy, this is a user submission, a, a, a listener submission. When I say user submission, because it's you, because you and I, all we talk about is like user generated content and all these horrible marketing terms. A listener <laughs> yeah. submission uh, from Truck and Johnny. Okay, you ready for this? His name's Truck and Johnny. Yeah, yeah. Can't, Truck and Johnny. Wait. Truck and Johnny says my wife's favorite movie is Pootie Tang. Are you familiar with the movie Pootie Tang, Adam? I am familiar with the movie Pootie Tang. Give us the ten. Give us the ten second uh, synopsis. I can't. I know that it was basically a uh, satire of the black exploitation films of the nineteen seventies. There's some pimping going on. I don't really remember the any the specific storyline to be honest. Well, Chris Rock was in it, right? And Louis C.K. directed yes. it. When I when Louis C.K. Right. was uh, when he was just doing comedy, he came through Peoria and I interviewed him, and we talked mostly about Pootie Tang, which is one of my great regrets um, of my <laughs> entertainment days. I really should have known his work better. All right, so Johnny writes, it's some of Louis C.K.'s best work, and if you give it a rewatch, you'll see a few familiar faces from The Wire. So I like to think that it's a prequel set in the same expanded universe as The Wire. I like that. <laughs> he and his Clever. he and his lady want to dress up as Pootie and Biggie Shorty for Halloween, but we are white. Obviously, we are not going to put on makeup. Biggie wears colored wigs, and Pootie has a ponytail. So it's not like we'll be rocking giant afros. Is our Halloween costume racist? And then he says, P.S. I am uh, I am fat and Pootie is thin, but that has never stopped a single cosplay player ever. Not even for one second. Okay. Adam, he's saying no blackface, no outrageous uh, customized or I guess improvised wigs that he thinks look black. They would try to stay true to the actual stuff the characters wore. Does that make him racist? Well, I would answer his question with another question because what I'm assuming is, and maybe I'm making a giant assumption, but I'm going to assume that all of his friends are white. So when he goes to a Halloween party and all of his white friends see it, will they be offended? Likely not. Would you, Truckin' Johnny is his name? Yeah. Would you... Would you, would you, Truck and Johnny, be comfortable wearing that outfit into a room of all black people? And if the answer is no, then yes, that is racist. I don't want to say a lot of people, but I would say there's probably a fair number of white people who have probably never been in an environment that is like 99% uh, African-American. I have uh, for, for, for work or at various times uh, you know, in my social life. And so I, 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 I get what you're saying. Yeah, I don't know. What, I mean, if, if you saw someone wearing that stuff, would you be like, yeah, would you be offended or would you be like, eh, whatever? I'm a little bit of a different case, I think, because I grew up in an all-white neighborhood and I try to make race a little bit light. Um, me personally, no. But would I understand how other black people might be offended? Yeah. I might, and I, I don't. I don't think there's any malice intended, but unfortunately, you have to be careful with those things. What does it matter that Louis C.K. <laughs> directed the movie? Can you just throw that? Yeah, nope. but Louis C.K. directed it, so it's really more like white nah. art. Yeah, well, Chris Rock <laughs> signed off on that. He gave the black seal of approval, so all good. I would say. So I guess the lesson here, and Truck and Johnny, I think we both w would say this is probably going to be fine. We appreciate the level of respect you're putting into 
thinking through the the definite nose. I once saw a dude dressed in full black upper body as Tupac. He had put on a swim cap and matched his whole upper body with with black paint, and uh, it was shocking. <laughs> it was it was legitimately it was legitimately shocking. Yeah, no to blackface always under all circumstances. Well, I mean, look. Speaking of a quick transition here, I mean, speaking of paying respects to complicated racial dynamics, I think it's time for a white guy from Ohio to give some really strong <laughs> opinions about a, a black man's artistic expression. Uh, don't Let's you, do Adam? <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. So well, I think you are the. I think you and Shea Serrano are the foremost leaders on athlete rap. So you are well qualified for this, sir. I like to. I do like to think of us as as leaders in the uh, in the dialogue of um, of athlete rap. Uh, Damian Lillard, uh, point guard from the Portland Trailblazers. His stage name Dame Dalla. We have talked about him on the show. We've compared him to Iman Shumpert. In the past, we have broken down his first full-length uh, CD when it came out last year. I can't believe I still call it a CD, Adam, but... Uh, his album. <laughs> yeah, his as album. As Kelly would say, his album dropped. That's right. My, as my wife would say, his album did drop. So confirmed, his second full-length album is out. Adam, I got a lot of thoughts, but let's start with you. Was it better than his debut, which you liked more than me last year? Um, I liked his first album better. I felt overall the listening experience of the 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 first album um, was a better listening experience. It felt like from start to finish, like there was some continuity from song to song, and that you were kind of getting a picture of his life and it was pretty introspective. This album feels more like a collection of songs. It's not that they were bad. Um, I just did not enjoy the listening experience as much. We can get in a little bit about the style later. I liked it. You like it better than the first album? I did. I liked it a lot better. I'm just saying. Really? Personally, Adam, and I'm interested for you to talk to you about the style but I'm going to go the almost exact opposite point and say that I thought his first album was just stylistically. It was so similar and so understated. Mm -hmm. And I think you even said it it had the, it had the daring or the cunning to be understated. Like he was confident enough to do that. This album I felt like had higher points. There were a number of songs that I was like, great, I'm really enjoying this. And I, even though it may not work as seamlessly as a collection as you may like, I thought the highs were higher and closer to the, the song uh, bigger than us, which I thought was his best, you know, his best work uh, to date, which kind of like, you know, leapt out of the earphones to me. I, I just felt like there were, there were signature moments on this album that I could really get behind. And even though I wasn't as crazy about the subject matter being a little bit more, you know, I would say it's 99% about him getting laid as opposed to tackling <laughs> anything that's happening in America. <laughs> yeah. I just felt like it was... I, I, the first time I listened to it, I was kind of like, huh? And the second time I was like, you know what? It's a party jam. Dame, pick me up at eight. Let's do this. 
Yeah, I thought I read something. He commented about his album, and I thought it was interesting. Uh, he said because people recognize him um, around town and other places he goes, his uh, first album, uh, people would play it in the club, and he would feel like it was forced, like the first album didn't really fit in any particular public environment. Um, on this album, his, his, I can't remember, either his friends or his cousins Snapchatted him. Uh, they were playing a couple cuts from the song at a club, and he said, Ah, oh, now I see like this fits in uh, like in a club environment or in a hip hop environment. So I do feel like the album was more energetic. I still personally um, didn't like it as much as the first one. I thought it was a bit more cliche, actually, in terms of being on trend with current rap music. I want to start here by analyzing how athletes shout out other athletes in their hip hop. Because there's a few examples I think worth citing and a couple that really were somewhat head scratching. In in the song Anomaly with two chains, <laughs> he talks, I mean, the whole chorus is him talking quite candidly about being a safety in the NFL. Is he the first NBA point guard to be writing a song about being an NFL safety, which seems like a far downgrade <laughs> in uh, in the athletic hierarchy, right? Yeah, I would say that the, he's in the category of one on that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's a point guard in the NBA. He's got a guaranteed contract. He's got the ball in his hands. And he's talking about being a safety way behind the line. And to me, that again, it feels like it'd be like me writing a rap and being like, uh, I'm going to, I wish I had five kids instead of two. Why would I do that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right, a couple more here. The, the, I think the most interesting song on the track, not musically, but um, thematically, is uh, The Letdown. And he, okay. it's him talking about what the end of a career in sports would look like. At least that's how I read it. I was going to say, he does. I liked Wonderland for the same reason. It wasn't really talking about the end of his career, but it was him expressing his insecurities about um, if he didn't make the money he made or if he got injured tomorrow would the same people in his life still be around uh, and kind of contemplating that. I thought that was really interesting. And to me, Wonderland sounded most like the first album, which is probably why it was my favorite cut. The, but the, the weird thing about the letdown, there's a, there's a, a line when he says, now I'm up to bat. Pray I don't go. Kenny loft it. I've listened to it a few I times. I think it's a shot at Kenny Lofton, but I can't figure out what the moment is. Like either okay, either way, I can't figure out if if there was like an awesome signature Kenny Lofton moment that would detail him saying, "I'm going to go Kenny Lofton" because it's a sign of greatness, or on uh -huh. the flip side, if he's ripping Kenny Lofton, I mean, Kenny Lofton was like playing on good teams until way past his prime. So I, I'm just yeah. struggling to figure out uh, exactly. I mean, the closest thing after a Google search I could come to was in in 2007 AL 
uh, CS, he got held up on third base for what would have been the tying run in game seven against the Red Sox. There's no way Damian Lillard knows that. <laughs> no. And that's an, no, age, that's an age comment, not a race comment. He, he was probably seven. Yeah, but do you think maybe he was just trying to find a, a name that rhymed? He had to have been. But, <laughs> I think that's, but that's a song about like the declining part of your career. I just would have thought maybe like Ricky Henderson, you know, like I don't want to be stumbling around and when I'm 45, you know, in the minors like that, I get <laughs> Tim Tebow. Yeah. I mean, anybody <laughs> look half that Blazers roster is in, in, like over the hill. Uh, yeah, that one, that one was great. And then look, the, the last big athlete, there's an entire song called Marshawn Lynch, which <laughs> yeah. is, I believe yeah. Adam. Well, for what's your interpretation of that song? Oh, this is the easy one. The interpretation of this song, I mean, this whole song is about him hooking up on the road with women, and he's borrowing from one of Marshawn Lynch's trademark lines, which is, I'm all about that action, boss. <laughs> yeah. And the whole, like, the whole chorus is, you know why I'm here, right? Like, just, <laughs> or you know what I'm here for. Like, that's all just his 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 Super Bowl um, press conference, right? Like, you know, I'm here. <laughs> I'm just here so I don't get fined. I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when they know I'm in they zip code, best believe they send they info. Uh, running my game like Nintendo. Marshawn Lynch, you know what I'm here for. You know what I'm here for. Baby, you know what I'm here for. I loved it. See, these are like, I thought, I thought run it up with Little Wayne was fun. Um, although there was a line Little Wayne had, which is, I'm going to get the check and run it up. So does that mean uh -huh. he's picking up the check and have a good time for everybody? Or does that mean that he's going to run up a huge tab and bail? Well, it could mean, it could mean both of those things. Um, so I don't know which one. I assume... He means he's going to get the check and he's going to spend a lot of money, but it can also mean he's going to pick up the check and pay for it. Yeah. I mean, knowing what I know about little Wayne, he's probably yeah, picking up that former, check. Not, yeah, of course he is. He's doing the right Very thing. Very conscientious. Yeah. yeah he, he's tipping his money. He's tipping 22%. He's going to get out the iPhone and check the, uh, you know, check the math on that. <laughs> Uh, what are, any other signature moments, man? Uh, just uh, stuff that you liked, stuff that you that you scratch your head at. Yeah, the only song I really didn't like was Shooter. Um, I thought it was kind of a cliched lines. For example, um, never name drop, but baby, I'm famous. You hotter than a sauna girl. I let my mama meet your mama, girl. Uh, yeah, I've heard that in about a thousand other rap songs. So, uh, they can't all be hits, but I, I, I think what's great is we're having this conversation where we can actually talk about a rapper's first album versus a second album. Yes. We've talked about Shaq a lot, but it's been a really long time since you had, um, an athlete who was really out there with their music and you could really talk about the credentials of their music rather than, Hey, this guy tried rapping. Is he good or not? And I think, 
Um, that's why this conversation is so much fun. Yeah. How about this? In the song uh, Fifth of Hen, the, yeah. the, he talks about being in my section on the sofa at the club. Adam, what's our, what's our official Just Not Sports take on plushy furniture at a nightclub? Brad, when is the last time either you or I were at a club? <laughs> I do a lot of like hotel lobby drinking on work trips. Does that count? <laughs> yeah. No, it doesn't. Uh, when's the last time you waited in line to get into a bar to have a drink? I mean, I, does does getting there before the bar opens count? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like 11 and it's 10:57, and you're like well I'll just I'll just hang out here I don't want to go back to the car no yeah my song would be about making an open table reservation and getting into uber and a panic because I have to get there at for that six o'clock happy hour I can tell you this away. I can tell you my whole life even my clubbing life uh I was always against plushy furniture at the club like I want, I want a Why? clean, I want a clean, uh, wood or metal chair with no cushions, <laughs> no bugs in Why? there, no stickiness. You can't oh, easily spot. Oh, this is a, this is a germ thing. Yeah, I don't know, man. Oh, it, it's like, it, it just, it's just something about sitting on a public couch. It reminds me of like just sitting down on a couch that someone keeps in their front yard in college. You know, I, I might, so I might hit the arm. I might hit the arm a little bit, like get a half, half yeah. butt cheek on that, but I'm not just going to like uh -huh. deep dive down in that center cushion, man. So when you're in the Ritz Carlton lobby waiting for one of your clients, as you go to a dinner. Yeah. That's what our life is about folks. Um, you will sit on a hard chair and not a couch. Yeah, I might do you one more and just like just do a stand uh, phone scan until they get down there. Got it. No sitting on any any foreign furniture. Adam, you know I never put anything on the floor of any hotel room. I do know that. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, yeah. Well, here, okay. So to close this out, I think I thought about this today. Would you buy the whole album, Adam? Would you recommend to our listeners buy the whole album? Or do you want to, should we pick out our starting five and just say, get the, these five like money hits? Which one? Five hits. Okay. Not a, not an album to buy. I've got, first of all, I've bought pretty much all full albums from all athletes. I get a lot of deep cuts <laughs> when I'm working out on, uh, you know, and the iPods on shuffle. Here's uh -huh. my here's my starting five. You tell me yay or nay and or what you would swap in. Okay. Number five, so lowest to make the cut is run it up. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh I thought that was good. Uh, number four is Marshawn Lynch. It's just fun. It's fun, fun jam. Right. I like the Middle Eastern, like, you know, like sort of vibes in the background. Three, boss life. Just so I can hear Dame Lillard saying, ride the pony. Like that's still in style. Got it. Got it. Okay. Two, Wonderland. All right. And yep. one. All right. The best song on the album, Switch Sides. We don't switch sides. We don't switch sides. We don't switch. Nah, I stay with my click. For real. Y'all gonna flip. 
Yeah, we gon' keep it lit. For real. Yeah, we made it. Yeah. Please don't try and hate it. Nah, I get jaded. Yeah, yeah. I come in invaded. Y'all Willie Taylor, I only rock with them day ones. That's my flavor. Yeah. That type to run when it get tough. I'll see you later. You like that song, huh? Yeah, I thought it was a low. I thought it was a low-key, passive-aggressive dig at all these NBA guys starting super teams. No, I know you wanted it to be. The title might be, but the lyrics don't match up with that. I'm sorry. It's about the switch sides. He might have titled it that to be provocative, but when you analyze the lyrics, it's really about the friends that he had from the start are still his friends. Uh, it's a song about loyalty and interpersonal relationships. I don't think it had anything to do with the business of the NBA. Well, yeah, but he talks extensively about that guy, uh, Mevin Ferrant. Who? <laughs> Mevin Ferrant. <laughs> yeah. um, let me give you mine. I'm going to go with... Uh, number five, though it's the way the album starts, no punches. Yeah, it's just a five. lot of cats with money. We ain't unified. Tell them, Dane. Uh, yep. Oh, boy. All right. Uh, one and only would be number four. Really? Marshawn, yeah. Marshawn Lynch, number three. Uh, run it up number two that is that makes I would put run it up on any workout playlist and number one Wonderland I mean run it up they do shout out crisscross and I'm a big fan of that it's shown respect <laughs> knew, for the it's shown respect for the be. pioneer the pioneers of hip hop yeah there uh, are no other would you have liked to see the only thing missing from this an Iman Shumpert cameo. I, Dame, I don't. He doesn't strike me as as someone who would do that. Uh, who would who would put another rapper on? Even Shaq. I just think Dame thinks he's too legit to uh, to quit. Perhaps Adam. <laughs> I knew that was coming. And final line. Uh, hey, just to close this out. Like a trap party album, or <laughs> like a trap party, <laughs> Adam. I'll turn your funeral into a trap party. Here's what I wonder is, has Damien Lillard found his sound? Because I would be disappointed if the kind of trap music, more Southern uh, influenced, I would say, beats in the album are his signature sound. It just doesn't fit him in his lyrical style uh, in the way I felt his first album did. So I'm hoping that he is still looking for his sound. He did feel like his first album um, was more people guiding him and this is more of who he is. But I hope this isn't the direction he's going. I know he's 27 and that's probably, this is probably what he was most influenced by. But I I just not feeling it as much as the other album. Uh, I know what he did find was his penis, which he seems to have put into a lot of women's <laughs> vagina. <laughs> According to the, the theme of the album. Look, Dame Dollar, we love it. 
I love it. Don't listen to these haters. I think this is great. I'm all in. I want to see that. He said in an interview, he said uh, he's he's making quality music on an annual basis. Just not sports. We are here for the long haul. And with that, Wait. wide open is over. Wait, I, I have to shout it out because he took the time to do it. So as you know, I mentored a young man in Green Bay who was a freshman in college. So I felt maybe we should get a young person's perspective since two 37-year-olds are talking about a rap album. Um, Cody, uh, my my little brother, gave this album a five or six. He says he does a great job of keeping his styles diverse. I don't think this is a platinum album or it will hit the billboards, but it's surprising that an athlete can create an album that is worth listening to. One and only stood out to him, uh, as well as the song with Lil Wayne. Um, yeah, that's it. Hey, man, I don't need no punk kid telling me what kind of athlete rap I can and can't listen to. When's the last time you had a conversation with anyone under the age of 20? That's a potentially dangerous question. Let's skip it. Yeah. And I, well, <laughs> and I, uh, and I have two kids at home, Adam. So with that wide open, oh, yeah. wide open is over. Okay, right now, we're going to go to a really fun interview with longtime NHL reporter, writer, podcaster, Sean McIndoo. He grew up listening to stand-up comedy, like a lot of us. You know, we owned the albums, we memorized the bits. Uh, I'm actually from Peoria, Illinois. Well, I'm not from there or from Ohio, but I spent 10 years there. And um, that's where Richard Pryor was from. And so comedy was sort of ingrained in the local community. Uh, we had a lot of great comics come through town. I had a chance to interview many of them, you know, uh, Louis C.K., George Carlin, Wanda Sykes. And it, it, was, it was great to sort of sit down with someone who grew up a comedy fan and break down what they love about stand-up, stand-up the unappreciated uh, part of the arts world, uh, but something that we all uh, really enjoy going to see. So I think you'll enjoy it. We go deep on some George Carlin bits on uh, you know late-night TV shows, Impact, on stand-up, on uh, where the genre is going, and uh, even the funniest players in the NHL. So stick around. You'll enjoy that. And then after, Adam and I will return with our distractions. Here's where I want to start. Like, everybody has a different sort of story about how they got into it. Um, some, I think some people were HBO kids growing up and they got into the specials and, um, sort of just the live comedy scene there. Um, in our emails that we traded back and forth, you'd mentioned radio shows and I, I know whether it's local or some of the national folks, and then there's clearly the late night TV shows. So I guess I'm just curious, like what was your primary vehicle, uh, for comedy and, 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 and what were the outlets that sort of got you into this space? The, the story starts with a Sunday night radio program that was, I grew up in, in Toronto. So this is on, on the Toronto radio station, Chum FM. 
and it was it was a uh, a music station, but for for a couple of hours Sunday nights at ten o'clock they would do an hour of stand up comedy followed by an hour of old school radio dramas, hmm. and that became like my thing that got me through the week that I would at night. I, you know, I'd go to bed and it was past my bedtime, but I had this big square clunky radio that I would sit on my bed and I could listen to. And, and, and the other nights of the week, I'd be listening to sports, listening to the Blue Jays games, Maple Leafs and all, and all that sort of thing. And I'd fall asleep with the radio on every night. At some point in the night, I'd roll over, kick it over. It would hit the wall, make this huge noise, probably woke my parents. I probably drove them crazy. Uh, but on Sunday nights, if I could stay awake late enough, I could listen to this hour long comedy show. And it was hosted by a guy named Rick Hodge. And he was the he was the, the morning guy uh, and uh, Monday to Friday for their for their big their big morning show. But uh, somehow or other, he ended up doing this this one hour Sunday night show uh, and they would just play stand up and comedy bits. And it, it was it, it was like this is FM radio. So it was PG-13. They, they didn't they didn't you know, they weren't playing any Lenny Bruce or anything like that. Right. But they could you know, they could dip their toe into some stuff that was maybe a little bit beyond certainly what you would hear on on some, uh, uh, you know, some some day to day show. And that's where, you know, for the first time I got to hear people like George Carlin, people like Stephen Wright people like Emo Phillips or even even Bob Newhart who would, he was a name I knew from TV but I, I didn't know that he had he had done this this stand up and and sort of uh getting familiar with that stuff and and hearing some of these bits and in some cases hearing them over and over again um and and just kind of realizing that like th- yeah this is this is my thing because I was never I, I even at that age, even you know when I was a young kid, and you know, my friends were starting to get into into music and into other stuff, and I was never like it. it, it you know, I, I never knew any musicians that weren't currently in the top ten of of the pop list, whatever was popular at that at that moment. I did anything beyond that, I had no idea. But I was the first kid in in my in my school to figure out who George Carlin was and to start piecing together some of this other stuff that was going on and 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 starting to grow an appreciation for that. Yeah, I mean, the I guess how would you say that stand up and listening to those guys shaped your sense of humor personally? Are you someone that do you feel like you've kind of gravitated toward their worldview or perhaps um it's it's sort of uh really dictated, you know, the types of uh you know, the types of humor that you um, that you, that you enjoy, or maybe even just the, the way you tell a joke, uh, or the, the, the bits you run back. I, I just am wondering like what imprint did it have on you at a young age that you think is still persist today? I mean, there, there's definitely, uh, I mean, you, you use the word imprint. That's probably the right word. Cause there is some of that where even today I'll sit down to write something and I'll, I'll look back at it, you know, not, not so much at the time I'm writing it, but I'll look back on it a week or a month later and I'll be like, that sounds a lot like, you know, <laughs> like a Letterman bit, or that right. sounds a lot like, you know, a, a flying circus sketch or that, you know, something from there. And, and it's not conscious and, and it, it never should be. I mean, certainly when you're, when you're doing comedy, you never want to sit down and, and be like, I'm going to try to sound like so-and-so because, you know, you're, you're just, you're just taking their stuff at that point. But 
Yeah, certainly there, there was, you know, that, that was a time where, uh, you know, there, there, there were some, some different voices out there and some of them appealed to me and some of them didn't, you know, another, you know, I, I got really into around that time, I got really into David Letterman, just like, you know, half, half my generation probably did around the same time. But, you know, when he was still on at 1230, uh, and you know, it wasn't something you, you saw very often and, and he was doing stuff that was kind of different and weird and, uh, and, and yet still felt accessible enough that, uh, that you weren't just staring at it in, in total confusion. And, you know, from, from there getting into Johnny Carson and all this other stuff where half the time you didn't necessarily understand the jokes because you were a kid and you had no idea who these guys were, were even talking about, but just the, the, you know, the kind of the flow of it and the, 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 the way that they would introduce a premise and set it up and, and, you know, and all of this stuff. And, and, you know, for especially early in my, my writing career, there was a time where I was basically doing written versions of, late night talk show desk bits. I mean, that that's basically, you know, it would be a couple of paragraphs of here's an intro, you know, here's, here's, I'm giving you the premise. And now here we go. We're going to go punchline, punchline, punchline down the list. And, you know, I go back and I look at that stuff and it's like, I mean, that's, that's just, that's Letterman's desk bits right there, just being repackaged into a, into a, in a slightly different way and then turned into writing about hockey instead of, you know, who, whatever the politics of the day or whatever he was talking about back then. Yeah, and I think you're you brought up a good point about Letterman introducing a lot of us to different styles. I always thought of him as the bridge uh, to alternative comedy. I mean, I mean, and 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 not just because he'd bring up people like Mitch Hedberg, but uh, the absurdist version of it just felt different than Carson. Um, and they both clearly would be would be seen today as true pioneers and 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 gatekeepers for the entire industry. But I guess were there any specific artists that you like? Stephen Wright's a good example. You mentioned him before, like that. You just when you the first time you heard it, you go, "It never really occurred to me that you could do this." <laughs> you know that, or like this, this is a that this is a style of humor that feels totally different. Yeah, I mean, in in my case, I was hearing these guys a lot of times. This was my introduction to to what comedy was. So I you know I didn't I didn't know Rodney Dangerfield at that point, or I didn't know some of the other guys that were maybe doing. Uh, doing Carson or, or even doing Letterman at the time, but uh, it was, uh, you know, just sort of, you know, I, I, I knew I had, I was familiar with the idea of being funny and, you know, with the idea and, and I'd seen miscellaneous standups on TV plenty of times, but, but, you know, no, never anyone where I would know the name or, or that it would even matter. And they were just getting up there and it was the standard, kind of this is what stand-up comedy is and oh boy airplane food is terrible and you know all of this stuff <laughs> uh and and it was completely you know it was funny sometimes and sometimes it was very funny but it was completely interchangeable and 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 it, to get into start hearing people who just had their own their own voice and their own rhythms and you know like some of those guys i mentioned like if you've heard Stephen Wright once you know, you know that there is there is nobody who who sounds like that. I mean, this is a guy who you talk about a, a comedian having their own voice. This guy literally had his own voice. Um, but you know, to to the point where you know, just getting up there and doing these sort of absurd, you know, one line and then move on to the next thing jokes. And and you know, there's there's plenty of guys that you know. You mentioned Mitch Hedberg. You hear Mitch Hedberg, you can hear echoes of Stephen Wright in that. You know, and 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 on down the chain. Uh, and, and even a guy like, like George Carlin, you know, I'm listening, I'm being introduced to him 
through this radio show. So, you know, I, I don't know about the seven words you can't say on TV. And, you know, I don't know about some of the stuff about religion and some of the stuff about drug use and, you know, all of this other stuff. Like, I, I won't see that or hear that until later. But just to, you know, even his stuff where he's just playing with words and, and just playing with the language and, and realizing, you know, as I'm listening to this guy that, you know, wait a second, this isn't just a guy who has a funny thought in his head that's coming up and, and just saying the funny thought into a microphone. This is a guy who has planned out every word that he's saying is important and every, every, every syllable, everything he emphasizes, everything he does with his voice, it's all crafted to, to make the joke work. And you don't necessarily realize that until you've heard the bit three or four or 10 times uh, that, you know, wait a second, this is this wouldn't work if it was even done slightly differently. Uh, and, you know, just just to kind of realize that, you know, man, there's so much more to this than just being the funny guy. Man, there's there's a ton of funny people out there, but they couldn't do this because they don't understand that the hard part is not coming up with the funny idea. The hard part is writing the joke. I, in our emails, I mean, you had said he's he's probably your goat. Uh, what about him do you think kind of elevates him to rarefied air when you think about your favorites of all time? Yeah, I mean, and, and part of it is is because he really was the first of these legendary guys that that I heard and, and was exposed to. I'm sure that's that's part of it. Uh, whereas, you know, some of the the other names that are in that conversation, the Richard Pryors and, and those sorts of guys, I didn't I didn't run into until a little bit later. But the thing with Carlin is he he, he was legendary at so many different stages and so many different types of comedy. You know, he started off in, in, in the fifties and sixties being the guy in the suit and tie, part of a little comedy duo going up and, uh, you know, doing, you know, vaudevillian almost type, uh, uh, type acts and then sort of shifted into the counterculture and, uh, you know, and, and, and started getting into, into that in the late sixties and then through the seventies and then embracing more politically as the eighties went on. And, you know, you're, you're just sitting there going, it, you know, it's it's so hard to be good at any one of those things. There, there's so many people out there today trying to be good at at one type of comedy to have somebody who over the course of their career, you can just sort of watch them evolve and uh, and 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 be so good at it from so many different angles to the point where you're right. I mean, by by the end, if, if somebody if somebody's only all they know of George Carlin is YouTube clips of, of a guy in his seventies with the ponytail getting up there and, and ranting about, uh, you know, George Bush or whatever it is. Uh, you know, that stuff on its own is great. Uh, but there's, there's so much more behind it and, and, you know, to see it kind of, kind of evolve over time and, and sort of see what parts he kept and what parts he, he had to, to sort of throw away as he moved in different directions is it, it was, it's, it's fascinating. And then the fact that he was able to, to do it at a high level right up until the very end, uh, is, is amazing. Um, I was a newspaper reporter in Peoria, Illinois, where Richard Pryor was from, and um, they had a good comedy scene for the market size. And one of the last interviews I did was George Carlin. He came through town every few years, and it was in, I think it was in 2007, because he died like a year later. Um, and and he was he was like very... 
you know, I mean, most times when you're interviewing comedians, they don't want to be on, you know, like unless they're doing like a morning radio hit or something, they want to just talk. And he was, he was so, uh, uh, I think, I don't know how to describe it. Like hope uh, without hope for the future of our species, I think is what he, <laughs> what he talked about. Um, and I, but I, I agree with you. I, I think the joy of rediscovering all of his, his various forms, you know, like you said, ranting against, uh, how much he thought, you know, the species was going to be extinct in 10 years. Just the amount of thought and work that went into to everything that that he said. And when you watch these performances and you can just see that, you know, everything is mapped out. And I remember reading uh, an interview that he did uh, where he was talking about he was talking about writing a joke and he was talking about a joke where the punchline to the joke had to have a number in it. And the number itself didn't matter. Like the, the number wasn't the funny part. It just the, the number, there had to be a number in the punchline. And so, you know, anyone else, you just go, okay, so just pick a number and, and the, you got your punchline. But he walked through the whole thought process where he was like, okay, you know, let number seven, I can't use seven. That's two syllables. That's the wrong number of syllables. It throws off the rhythm of the joke. So we, we can't do seven. Can't do eight because eight is a common word uh in another form you know i ate a sandwich and that that using a word like that that causes a momentary confusion for the audience so that's no good nine okay yeah nine could work ten tens and tens a nice round number it doesn't it feels artificial it feels fake 11 i can't that's way too many syllables he can't do 11 and and on down the list and so he wound up using the number nine in the punchline and you're just sitting there going like the the number didn't didn't even matter to the joke itself and yet that amount of thought went into just one word in one punchline to one joke. Comedians are supposed to be boundary pushers, but um, they're often on the front lines of uh, commentary of what you can and can't say. And a lot of them complain that that isn't it's worse now because they're being filmed without knowing or people put 30 seconds of a soundbite online and, and it's out of context. And so they seem like they're being more offensive. Where do you net out on on the role that um, comedians play in terms of, um, you know, breaking down sort of cultural norms and barriers and how much leeway should they or shouldn't they get uh, to, to tackle whatever they want on their own terms? It's it's tough because you're right. This this has become more and more an issue over over the last few years or it feels like every every few weeks is some comedian gets caught saying something that has offended somebody somewhere and then a blog post goes up or a Facebook post or, or whatever it is. And, and then, and then off we go on the, uh, uh, the, this sort of well-oiled outrage machine that, uh, that we all like to do online. And, you know, where I come down on that is like, look, I, I think that stand-up comedy is an art form. Like I think, I think that stand-up comedy is something that can literally uh, it, it can literally help change the world. It, it can. There are truths that can be said in that context that don't get said in other places. And and I think that you know when you look at at some of the what what some of the greats have done and, and some of the ways that conversations have been steered by things that have been said on a comedy stage. Uh, you know, I, I I put it right up there with film or music or literature or any other, any other art form. And I know that most people probably hear that and the eyes kind of roll into the back of their head, but I really, I really believe that it's, it's right there as, as far as, uh, as far as its importance. And that means that I cannot 
you know, I, I can't hold that opinion. And yet when somebody puts their hand up and says, I just heard something said on a stage that offended me, dismiss them by saying, well, it's just a joke. Oh, it's just right. comedy. You know, don't, don't worry. Don't What are you getting offended for? It's a comedy club. What did you expect? So, you know, I, I do think that when, you know, I, I think it's a comedian's job to push boundaries and it's their job to get up there and, and step on some of those, uh, some of those landmines and to talk about some of those things that we're not supposed to talk about or not supposed to joke about. But I, I don't think that's unlimited. And, and I, I think it's totally valid for people to occasionally push back and occasionally call them on things and say, you know, this either went too far or there wasn't enough thought put into this or, or, or what have you. I think that's valid. All I ask is let's at least make sure that we're, if we're having that discussion, let's discuss it in the context of that. This was something that was said as part of a comedy routine, as part of a comedy bit and, and not, take it out of that context. And because there are things that get said on a stage that if they were said in a normal conversation, or if they were, if you overheard somebody on the subway saying that you'd, I mean, you'd call the police, you would, you would think this is a horrible person, but within the context of being part of a comedy act, you know, maybe that changes the meaning. Maybe that changes how we should talk about it. But I I don't believe that that means that anything that's said on a stage goes and, and, you know, we, we, we need to shout down anyone who even, even tries to object. Yeah. I mean, the most, the most jarring example of that I ever faced personally was an old boss of mine, uh, a white guy who started after a few drinks, started talking to me about the famous Chris Rock bit, you know, black people versus N word. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he wasn't censoring himself and he was using it as a critique of, well, you know, Chris Rock said it, you know, that's true. And I, I was, I was floored at how he misread the satire and the purpose of that. And I know since then, Chris Rock has talked about fe- almost feeling re- like almost regretting having done that bit because it became his signature stuff for so long. And it may have given people uh, the wrong impressions. And and I, I do think there's a power in the joke telling and, and, but there's also in comedy, there's the risk for misinterpretation. There is always that risk that, uh, you know, whether you're, whether you're making a movie or a song or, or doing a stand up routine that once you put it out there in the world, some people might take it and, and, and run with it in a direction that, uh, uh, that either wasn't what you intended or, or may, may even be the, the exact opposite of that. And again, that's where you sort of get into this place where there are people out there who think that if something is said as a joke, that it's off limits uh, as far as uh, as far as anyone complaining about it. And that you just, you know, get a sense of humor and lighten up. And it's it's not. I mean, that's that's not how this works. Somebody who's up there doing material that they may have been working on for years and, and have put a, you know a ton of thought into is very different than than you just taking that and repeating it and, and, and throwing it out there to back up whatever sort of messed up internal clockwork you've got going on. Yeah. And, the, you know, the industry has changed so much over the years where, I mean, we talk about the role social media plays in um, people's perception of of certain material, but also just the way comics operate. I mean, it used to be you you heard them on late night, you saw them on stage. They if they got really big, they get a special. Now I feel like we have this new boom of 
podcasts, uh, far more outlets for specials like Netflix or things like that. So where do you, these days, where do you consume the most comedy and, and maybe what are some gems that you kind of, that your go-tos, whether they're podcasts or certain individuals? Yeah, it's, uh, you're right. It's, it's uh, this kind of weird, almost transition phase. It feels like we're, we're maybe moving away from the idea that, yeah, you go on the road and you, you spend a couple of years until you got a solid hour and then you take that hour and it becomes your special or your album or whatever it is. Uh, and you know, these days there's comedians who are, who are on Twitter, just throwing jokes out there, uh, you know, for, for free for, for 20 people to retweet. And, and I know that there's, you know, this, this discussion of, okay, well, does that count as using your joke? Cause it's always been the case in standup that once you've, once you've done a joke, if, once you've put it on an album or done a special, that's it. The, that joke is gone. It's, it's dead to you now. And you got to move on to, uh, to something else. Uh, and you know, does that count? If you've, if I tweet something, is that it? Have I used that joke or can I now take that back and, and put it into my act in some way and, and use this as a bit of a workshop? And, you know, I, I, am I've, I've never been a big podcast consumer. Um, I do, you know, I follow a bunch of these guys on Twitter. I follow, you know, on, on Facebook and where have you, I'm still kind of old school. Like I still appreciate the old fashioned, you know, special, the old fashioned album, uh, and, uh, you know, one, one person on a stage with a microphone and, and that's kind of my, my preferred, uh, preferred vehicle. And, and it's, and it's a great time for that because, you know, even, even as we've got all this other stuff kind of gnawing away at it, you've, you've got Netflix right now, which, you know, at this point, everybody's got Netflix and they're, they're putting out a, a new special every week, you know, and, and in some cases, by, by very big names and in some cases by people that you haven't necessarily heard of. And you, you know that, you know, if you're a comedy fan, you, you're sitting there going, okay, it's Tuesday, but what's, what's just shown up on Netflix today? And then something pops up and, and you give it a try. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe you like it or maybe you don't, but uh, more often than not, it's, it's good stuff. And then that's sort of put another, another name in your pocket that you can keep an eye on uh, going forward. Yeah, I'm like the last guy in the world without Netflix, and it drives me crazy. But uh, my wife and I were cutting back finances, and I was like, "Fine, uh, I'll lose Netflix and HBO." So, uh, but that said, so so who who are your go tos right now? Like, what who's exciting you? That's I guess either new or or a tad more current than the greats. Well, I mean, it's yeah, it bounces it bounces all over the place as far as the 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 people who are who are currently doing stuff. I mean, obviously, Louis C.K. is kind of at, at the top right now as as far as the uh, you know the the comedians working today and and the the level of output he has and the amount that he's doing and and doing a new special every year. I mean, he's kind of in that sense been the guy to pick up Carlin's mantle of of being a guy who could you know not, not go five years between doing specials, but maybe go a year or or a year and a half. Uh, and that's, that's always impressive. And, and he's, uh, you know, been a guy that is, as he's kind of made the transition from 10 years ago where he was pretty standard, indistinguishable comedian doing the same kind of jokes that everyone else does. And then, then sort of found his niche with some of the family stuff. And, uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's been fun to watch and, uh, you know, and and even his, his most recent special I thought was very good. So he's, he's still someone that's, that's right up there near the top of the list. You know, other guy, you go down the list. I mean, I, you know, I'm a big fan of Bill Burr. 
big fan of Patton Oswalt. I, you know, Todd Barry is a guy that, you know, maybe is, is a little bit lesser known than the other guys, but, but shouldn't be because he's, his, his stuff is, is just uh fantastic. Uh, you know, Pete Holmes last few specials, very good. Hannibal Burris, uh, is a name that I think people are, are starting to know a lot more now. Um, Tignataro, Maria Bamford. I just watched her special on Netflix. Finally, uh, I had, I had, kind of been holding off because she does something very different in that where rather than being rather than doing her hour in a comedy club she does it in all these different places she, she goes to park benches and people's living rooms and all this stuff and i like i say i'm very traditionalist as far as you know i want somebody on a stage get up on stage and and, and tell the jokes and i didn't think i would like that kind of uh, uh that kind of approach and i finally i finally sat down and watched it and i came away from it realizing i I think I was right about the approach and there's probably only five people that working in the world today that could really pull it off. But she's one of them because she's, you know, we don't talk sports in this show, but who are the funniest NHL players in your opinion? Oh boy, that would be, man, that, <laughs> that would be a tough one. Cause I'm sure there are lots of funny NHL players, but we almost, we don't hear about it. Like the NHL is not, the hockey world is not a funny world. It is. And, and you know, and I, I guess I should be glad for that because that's part of the reason I'm here. That's part of the reason that I, I have a career is that when I first started, you know, as, as a, as a nobody writing kind of comedy based hockey material, it, it, it grew an audience partly because there was just nobody else who was even doing it, you know? And, and it's, and it's kind of weird to think of it that way because you know, there's, you think of hockey, hockey is, hockey is Canada, right? This is, this is what we do up here. And the other thing that we do up here is comedy, right? Like, I mean, this, this is, this is what Canada, Jim, you know, Jim Carrey, Mike Myers, John Candy, all these guys, you would think there'd be lots of hockey comedy. And yet there's very little to the point where somebody like me can come along and start doing it. And people are like, you're the funniest hockey, but, and it's like, well, yeah, but that's, that's a group of one. Like I'm number one on a list of one right now. Uh, so, you know, as, as far as the players, yeah, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's a ton that are real funny in person, but they, they tend to, in the hockey world, you're not supposed to express anything that, that makes you stand out at all. So there's, there's a handful like Roberto Wongo is, is obviously if, if you're on Twitter, most hockey fans follow him and, uh, you know, they, they know that he's a funny guy and, and there's a handful of others, but, uh, yeah, most, most of these guys are just, they're, they're, they're so programmed into the, into being robots that, uh, uh, if, if, if there is anything like that kind of behind the shield, they, they do not let it out. Final question here would be, have you ever done stand-up? Have you ever just popped on an open mic, or or do you ever expect that you will try it uh, as a lifelong fan here? Never, never, never have done it. Never would have the guts to do it. I I I wish I could. I honestly like, you know, when you're sitting around like, man, if I could, if I could just, if I could do any job, you know, I I'd want to be the, I want to be the center fielder for the Yankees. I want to be the lead singer of a rock band. Like for me, I would love to do stand up as, as a job. I mean, I, I, and not even, not even as being like the Louis CK, I just, you know, go around town to town, make people laugh. That's, that's awesome. That to me, that sounds like that, that's the dream, but I know myself well enough that I would never be able to do it. Cause cause even if I got up there, even if I could through years and years and years, get really good at it. Um, you know, I know if I got up there and, and did 10 minutes and I killed for nine minutes and 45 seconds, just like 
people rolling on the floor. Thank you. Good night. Standing ovation. The 15 seconds that didn't work would keep me awake at night. I would not be able to sleep thinking about the the one line that didn't work or the one piece that I stumbled over. Um, and, and I, I would, I would lose my mind. There's no way that I could do it. And I have so much admiration for the people who do do it, you know, and even, even the people who are just doing it at, you know, amateur hours and, and, you know, these, these people who just get up and, you know, and they, and they've got, maybe they've got nothing, you know, maybe there's just, just five minutes of dead silence, but they got through it and they, you know, and they, and they do it. I've got all the respect in the world for them. Cause I know that I would never in a million years have the guts to do it. Well, never say never. Maybe we'll get you up there at some point. Uh, you know, you and, and Luongo, you know, just uh, doing a doing a, a two man show, uh, Smothers Brothers style. Could happen. Could happen. You never <laughs> never say never. But I think I got I got a better shot at that uh, Yankees center fielder job at this point. <laughs> well, it's been awesome breaking this down. You've given us so much time. <clears throat> You've got a ton of outlets where people can read you and listen to you and, um, and and check in on all of your your thoughts around the hockey season. Where where do you, where do you want to direct folks? You know what? Your best place to find me is is just on Twitter at uh, Down Goes Brown is the handle, and and uh, that's where you'll find me tweeting about hockey and and stealing jokes about hockey and and all of that other fun stuff. And and I tweet out the links to all the stuff that I write for places like Sportsnet and Vice Sports and and others. Uh, so that's that's probably your best bet. Follow me on Twitter there, and then yell at me because of some some joke that you thought of seven seconds before I tweeted it. <laughs> yeah, that's a dangerous invitation for Twitter, man. <laughs> Come yell at me on Twitter. No problem. They will be there. And we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, media, they do cool stuff that they like away from sports. And instantly we tell them they're being a distraction. Stop it. Go watch film. Quit poisoning the locker room. This is ridiculous. We know that life is just work and the things that distract us from work. So on this show, we end it every week by telling you what's been distracting us. Adam, I'm going to go first. Is that okay? Yeah, you go ahead. All right, man. It's almost All Hallows Eve. We are in October. We are in the throes. We got horror movies coming out. We got horror podcasts and movie podcasts doing big retrospectives of the classics. And I'm eating it all up, man. I love it. So I thought today... I would merge my love of overanalyzing and overthinking horror movies with my uh, duty as a member of the sports media to come up with a ridiculous power ranking that no one ever needed. You know, Freddy versus Jason, right? Yeah. Okay. I've power ranked all 21 of the Freddy and Jason movies, uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street series and Friday the 13th into one master list. And I wanted to see. Okay. I wanted to see how it all shook out. Are you ready? Yeah, I should. I should just warn you in advance. I've never seen a single one of those movies. I, I don't think I'm going to be doing a whole lot of question asking to you. <laughs> this was going to be more uh, angry okay. rant and and mansplaining from me to our audience. Is that okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 
in keeping with recent events, Adam, I thought it'd be good for a, a for a, a, an overrated white guy to tell you <laughs> how <laughs> to, to to just settle down and hear more about how I'm thinking about the world. Okay, uh, I am listening to you and taking a knee. Go ahead. <laughs> Number twenty one, Friday the Thirteenth Part Five: A New Beginning. Number twenty. Friday the 13th, part nine, the final Friday. So the two bottom right there are Friday the 13th. <laughs> they, they set the part five is, is the worst is one of the worst movies I've ever seen, but it's, it's not even Jason. It's like a, a dude pretending to be Jason. It's ridiculous. 19, but not, but not, well, hold on. So, but not bad in a good way. Cause you can have movies that are bad in a good way. Just a bad movie in a bad way. Yeah, like I would say the list goes like I would say uh 16 through 21 are just bad in a bad way. 15 through 7 are bad in a good way. And 6 and above are not quite <laughs> I don't know if you'd call them good. Uh like Schindler's list is good. But they're qu- I, I like them. They're classics in their own way. All okay. right, you know I don't want to get right, too derailed. Nineteen. I won't interrupt you. No, no, no. Please do. Nineteen. <laughs> Freddy's Dead: The Final Nightmare. Eighteen is Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven. That's the one that was supposed to be Freddy versus Jason. They couldn't get the rights worked out, so it's essentially Freddy versus Carrie. He or excuse me, uh, Jason versus Carrie. Uh, he's fighting a woman who is uh, telekinetic, and uh, it's terrible. Um, 17 is the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street and 16 is the remake of Friday the 13th. Both those movies are the equivalent of like watching someone get their teeth pulled at the movies. Um, They're just joyless enterprises. But uh, Friday the 13th, the remake gets a little bit higher um, positioning because there is one really, really interesting and good uh, nudity scene in the middle. Uh, 15 is Jason Takes Manhattan. That's part eight. Uh, 14 is Elm Street Part 2, otherwise known as the probably parable for a gay teen coming out of the closet, even though, um, which has given it sort of a second life as a camp and cult classic, even though the filmmakers all sort of uh, deny that was the intent. Uh, but it clearly was. Um, 13 is, uh, oh, by, by the way, and it's an interesting movie with that being the subtext. Uh, that's why I have it up higher on the list. If, uh, 14 on this list counts as higher. 13 is Wes Craven's new nightmare. The meta version from the mid nineties, uh, with a Freddie redesigned 12 is Jason X, the one where they go to space, which also tells you that Wes Craven's new nightmare should be feeling really bad that I have it below the one where they put Jason in space. Um, 11, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. The only thing that worthwhile than that one is the flashback scenes and the pin drop uh, head explosion scene during the dream sequence. The rest of the movie is dog shit. All right, top 10, man. Adam, are you still alive? Yeah, I'm listening. Hey, whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Yep, keep going. Elm Street Part 5. I get it. I get it. It took me a minute. Elm Street Part 5, The Dream Child, then Freddy vs. Jason. I know a lot of people knock Freddy vs. Jason. What were you expecting? I thought it was fine. It was a lot of fun. Just (laughs) ease up. Uh, Eight, Friday the 13th Part 3. A pretty middling movie, but Jason does get the hockey mask in that one. And uh, the end scene is pretty great because it's probably the first time that, uh, that the lead character just legit 
is freaking out that the the bad guy just stays alive through all the things that he's going through. Like just he just keeps dying and then coming at her. And she by the end, it's more like bewilderment than uh, than at her actually being scared. Okay, top seven controversial, but I'm going to put the original Friday the 13th at seven. Yeah, I get it. It was the first one, but there are better Friday the 13th. Okay. Let's just be honest about that. And the mom twist. Fine. The boy jumping out of the, uh, the boy jumping out of the water at the end is classic, but otherwise, man, don't try to tell me that that is the best Friday the 13th. I'm not having it. It's like telling me the first bulls championship team was the best Bulls championship team. No one says that. Legitimately, would no one would ever say that. No, nope, uh, nobody says that. In sixth place, we've got Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master. It sounds ridiculous. That movie's actually fairly quality. Uh, there is a scene where a dude, uh, uh, Kung, uh, a white kid who knows karate, uh, karate fights uh, <laughs> Freddy while he's invisible. So essentially, he just fights the air. That's not so quality. But the rest of the movie is actually not bad. Uh, five, top five now, Friday the 13th part two, which I got to tell you, uh, has the best kill of any of these franchises, which is the the dude in the wheelchair getting a machete to the head and going down the stairs. Classic. Uh, not not PC, not for our times, perhaps, uh, but, but classic. Fourth place, <laughs> that's Friday part four, the final chapter. Uh, ironically, the final chapter, there legitimately was like seven or eight movies that came after that. Three is Elm Street three. That's Dream Warriors, uh, where they're in the mental asylum. And two, top two, is it going to be Adam Guest? Is it going to be Friday the 13th or Elm Street in the top place? I don't know, Brad. Why don't you tell me? Adam, your enthusiasm knows no bounds for this. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Number buddy. two, Friday the 13th, part six, Jason Lives. That was tough. It's, it's my favorite Friday by far. Uh, Number one, though, the original Nightmare on Elm Street. In the end, Adam, what it came down to was, in this, the only and definitive list that <laughs> like this, it came down mm-hmm, to mm-hmm, Elm mm-hmm. Street 1 was actually scary. I thought the effects were top-notch. It's got an all-star cast that includes, uh, you know, Johnny Depp. Friday Part 6, I love it, but it's campier. I can't really call it horror in the same way. It's it's more like a mid-80s slasher. But man, they're both movies you would tuck your kids into at night and say, I love you. Watch this until you, uh, you know. You would tuck your kid in and have them watch asleep. that movie? No, no, I'm just saying. What is wrong with you? This would be like a good family night, you know? Like, we'll sit down. I'll be like, kids, come on in. Do you want to watch Friday Part 6, Jason Lives? Or the original nightmare, and I'd be like, you know what, double feature. Let me ask you, what age do your kids have to be that you will let them watch these movies? If you thought, I know you thought about it. Oh, I mean, the I saw my dad let me watch Friday Part Five when I was six years old. So I mean, I, I'm not the best really? judge. Really? Yeah. No, I I would say they got to be teens. Explains or a lot. Yeah, teens are close. You know. Okay. All right. All right, Adam, you're up. I can't really follow that. So I really, I actually had a question for you. I was curious how was your about, fantasy leagues. Adam, this is weird. Was it about which, which movies I like better? The Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street? 
Nope, never going to ask you about movies again. <laughs> uh, let's not forget, I think we've brought this up on the podcast before, but you and I went to see, um, I, well, actually you, I, and your wife went to see a Batman movie and you ruined it for me. So I won't see or talk about movies with you again, unless it's on this podcast. Um, Sorry. My question for you was, you said you wanted to get into fantasy football because you were missing that social interaction and that male bonding. Are you feel like you're getting what you want out of that? Uh, I like being on the text chains. It's fun to see guys going back and forth. So yeah, it's fine. Uh, I, do, I don't like fantasy football. I don't like actually playing it. Um, I'm three and two or if I win tonight, which I should because my opponent did not start a quarterback or a kicker this week. Uh, they're both on by. Um, I hate that. I know, but I'm only up by like 40 points. So who knows? Um, <laughs> I think uh, I, I don't like playing fantasy football, uh, but I, I think the camaraderie is fun and it's, it's for 50 bucks. It's like, yeah, sure. Why not? Okay. Are you right. playing? I'm playing. I'm doing well in both leagues. I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm doing well. I'm just outscoring my opponent each week. So my teams aren't performing all that well. My opponent is just performing worse. So I'm in two leagues, one work league. Um, one is the league. Uh, one is the league with people I used to play dodgeball with in Chicago. That's probably the more, more fun of the two. But yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing well in both leagues. I don't know that I'll repeat it as champion this year, but with a surprising amount of key NFL injuries, I just might. Uh, I hate to even say this because I'm going to jinx myself. I've not lost a single player to injury. Yeah, I haven't either. Knock on wood. There you go. I also have on my bench every week Deshaun Watson uh, because I have Tom Brady. And how are you going to bench Tom Brady for the rookie? But I might have to. Kid just keeps scoring. I, you might, I don't know. He's also a great trade bait. Yeah, I don't know what I'd pick up because that, that's where I'd have to start doing research and I'm like, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That is our show for the week. I want to shout out Gareth, Joe, the legions of people looking for Joe. Uh, shout out our guest, of course, and Adam. Any shout outs on your end? Yeah. Hey, Gareth and Joe, thanks for leaving me alone for that countdown. Really appreciate it, guys. Um, I would like to shout out my fantasy draft picks as usual. My boy, Uzi, Def Jeff, mm-hmm. little Swanee, Meech. Shouldn't have left Meech on the bench last week. Ron Mack and my other cousin, Ron. And Adam, why don't we switch things up a little bit in the immortal words of Dame of Sh- Dalla. Oh, is it? Can we do this? You know why I'm here. <laughs> I'm all about that action, boss. No, no. In the immortal <laughs> words of Dame Dalla, I'll turn your funeral into a trap party. In the immortal words of Dame Dalla, you hotter than a sauna, girl. <laughs> In the immortal words of Dame Dalla, now I'm up to bat. Pray I don't go Kenny Lofton. <laughs> in the immortal words of Dame Dollar, who up in my bubble. <laughs> <laughs>
I could do this all day. All right. Thank you for listening. Booty right. rappers, stay booty. Booty rappers, stay booty. When they know I'm in they zip code, zip code. best believe they send they info. info. Uh, running my game like Nintendo. Nintendo. Uh, Marshawn Lynch, you know what I'm here for. You, you know, know what, what I'm here for. for. Baby, you know what?